The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. The topic of today's show is is essentially why is oil still expensive despite clean energy, all that technology and stuff. But before that, I feel a I feel I need to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what's going on in this entire investment, uh, personal investment podcast ecosystem and the investments that are going on with it. So let me let me let me back up a little bit. So a decade ago, I first started playing around with this podcast. I think it's like it, I think it truly was like the first podcast I did was like a, I think in thirteen, and then I like stopped for a couple of years or something like that because no one was listening. But anyway, I was I wanted to do it because I was super excited about this whole new world of investing that I was learning about and thinking to myself, well, why invest in stocks if you could invest in real estate, oil and gas, and other businesses? You know seemed to make a lot more money and and maybe it had a lot less risk and here I am a decade later and you know I I have matured quite a bit and uh gotten older but a decade later I can I can see why it often makes sense for people to just buy ETFs and call it a day or maybe you know just get into one of these permanent life insurance things like the wealth accelerator wealth formula banking that kind of stuff because you know Private investing can be very lucrative, and it has been for me and for a number of you, I know, but it's not regulated. So it does attract all kinds of nefarious activity and incompetent characters to the space. And, you know, particularly retail investors. And when I say retail investors, I mean like mom and pop, you and me, generally people who are not professionals, institutions in this space, living and breathing it. Um, they tend to have less sophistication on this stuff. And that's not to say those investors are not intelligent. It's just hard to be a full-time physician or, you know, whatever you are and uh, a sophisticated investor at the same time. So that's, that's why it gets a little dangerous because then you put this interface with guys like me who are personal finance podcasters well, what are we trying to do? We're really, ultimately, we're trying to find content, right? Like my goal in this, the very beginning, has been able to 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 provide a different perspective, provide different options, a different way of looking at personal finance, right? Um, podcasters, for the most part, we see ourselves as providing education and entertainment, when in fact, what happens is we inadvertently can endorse individuals uh, to whom we shouldn't be giving a platform, but we may not know that. And I have to admit, I've been guilty of this myself, especially early on. I'd interview all, anyone with an interesting idea. I'd be like, yeah, coffee? Oh, that sounds interesting. Let's do that. And then whiskey, whatever, let's do that. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's the problem with that, though, is that listeners sometimes uh, take these interviews as a stamp of approval from me, which is not, 
right? I mean, a number of these things that I talk about, I have no interest in investing in myself. A, a good example of that being my vehement and over and over uh, uh, expressed sentiment for my dislike now of investing in oil and gas, in oil and gas drilling, you know. Um, but that then, you know, I, I gave a platform to people uh, to talk about uh, oil and gas who seemed reasonable, right? They seemed reasonable. And, of course, again, the intent being what is, you know, what is it to invest in oil and gas and what are the potential benefits? Because there are, and people should know that, right? There was this huge tax advantage, still is a huge tax advantage. But the problem is in this oil and gas space, it's full, jam-packed full of, you know, shysters, uh whatever you want to call them, fraudsters, criminals, common, all that. And, you know, and there's been people who've been interviewed on this uh, podcast that have lost people money, and I feel terrible for that. I apologize. But that's a that's a real challenge as a podcaster. So, you know, I have to tell you, like, luckily, I have, I have that was, you know, I haven't had too many things like that. I mean, and in this space, it's become crazy, right? In recent months, you've got recent, you've got retail investors in this space who've been hit really hard because of, you know, some individuals going on podcasts and talking about what they're doing. And the next thing you know, there's, uh, you know, people, people think that these are real uh, opportunities and that they're legitimate I've seen some of them myself. It's kind of shocking, frankly, to me that people would even think of investing in these things. But again, it is a trust element that happens when somebody goes on a podcast and you have to be careful that you don't listen to podcasts and immediately make that a legitimization of 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 the person who's on. Just to give an example, I mean, this, uh, you know, in the last month or so, the SEC shut down um, multiple um, funds, um, carbon capture space, for example. There's one in uh, cannabis, as I understand it, um, that appear to be based in some level of fraud. Now, I'm not saying that the people who were promoting them were uh, necessarily, um, you know, knew that they were fraud, but that's the problem in this space, right? You can't just go out and raise capital and, 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 you know, and, and promote something when you don't have the sophistication to go and vet it yourself, right? And then there's other ones that maybe they weren't fraud, but they simply collapsed. They just collapsed because poor business plans were never attainable in the first place. And if you look at those business plans, you're like, are you kidding me? You're seriously going to think this is going to work. Okay, anyway, fortunately, again, our group was able to dodge these schemes um you know i never had any interest in interviewing these these people or these anything about these things it's you know it's hard enough to invest out there without swimming with sharks right case in point my real estate portfolio which i am you know again i've made good money in real estate for a long time now my real estate portfolio and my, and my investor group uh portfolio that are we we have some losers right now we're going to lose some money, right? Now, much of that is due to an unprecedented slope of rate hikes and unexpected price escalations, you know, price of materials, property, taxes, and insurance going off the chart. But 
One thing it's not, it's not fraud. And in investing, you can't always win. But if you avoid fraud, all you really need to do is win more than you lose. And we've had a long, long streak of big wins, right? And so expecting a loss once in a while is actually pretty realistic. But that being said, again, you lost not because somebody actively cheated you in a nefarious way or in a benign neglect sort of way where they didn't have any clue what they were doing, but because um, sometimes you can't, sometimes you don't make money when you invest. And that is something that nobody wants to say, but it's the truth. And at the end of the day, again, my own investments, the big picture, they're going to net out quite profitably. And I borrowed, and the reason for that, by the way, is because I've borrowed from the traditional investing paradigms in one way. I volume average. I volume average. I have a lot of investments in a lot of different assets, even in, you know, and you know that from what I've said before, the most of them are real estate related. So net net, I'm going to have some losses, but I'm going to have my gains are going to be a lot more than that. And that's fine. I've stuck to a plan for several years. Again, overcome some setbacks and I will now what am I going to do now? I'm going to position myself to be opportunistic and to take advantage of oncoming distress. It, it's going to get ugly. I mean, it is going to get really ugly in the next few quarters here. And you know what's going to happen? Most people, most people are not going to do anything. They're going to get too scared to take action, uh, especially if they've suffered some losses in the down market. But I have to tell you, and I'm going to warn you over and over again. That's exactly when you want to be greedy, not afraid. Okay. I'm not, you know, listen, at the end of the day, you do what you want to do, but I'm going to tell you that that's the situation we're going to be in. But going back to how we can, you know, move forward, specifically in this community, in the safest way possible, we do need to be proactive in risk mitigation, especially when it comes to avoiding scams. And this is particularly important for things that are outside of real estate. Now, real estate is, to a certain degree, it's like, okay, you've got this great big asset there. You can look it up. You can walk it. You can drive it, whatever. You know it's on sale. So it's it's a little bit uh, less important there. But when it comes to investing in businesses, when it comes to investing in, you know, a number of other things, like, for example, our ATM fund, I mean, um, those things are a lot more, uh, a, a lot more difficult for people to understand what's going on. So, what we're going to do, first of all, as far as the podcast goes, I've already kind of done this. You've probably noticed, but I'm not interviewing anyone who actively raises capital. Um, there are cases when I'm personally involved in an operation and I have transparency. Then great. I mean, if I have Dante Andrade on, um, and we're talking about real estate, Dante is my partner on Turo. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about it. And, it's, you know, I'm not really worried that we're going to lead anybody astray. Um, the other thing is our investor club, which, you know, our accredited investor group uh, is joined. Uh, you can join that in, uh, on wellformula.com, our investor club. But we're only going to present opportunities, uh, A, in which I'm a managing partner um, and or um, which has undergone due diligence by a third-party SEC-registered broker-dealer. The reason for this is, again, we want to make sure that everything that we are potentially putting out there is vetted at a very high level. And in taking these steps, 
uh, my podcast itself does become a little bit more challenging, right? As you've already noticed, again, we've shifted to more macro issues and investment-related topics. However, I also believe that the steps that we're taking uh, with the podcast and with the Investor Club is really going to provide a next-level sort of best-in-class retail experience, which I think is lacking in this space. It is the wild, wild west in this space right now. Um, but what we're going to do uh, is we're going to have institutional level due diligence on everything we provide. And that's just not available to retail investors for the most part. Uh, and um, anyway, it's going to be more complicated. It's going to be more challenging to execute. But, you know, you deserve it. I deserve it. We, we need to be able to, you know, win and lose based on our investments and not worry about, you know, everything else. Um, now, getting back to this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, um, we're going to talk about oil and alternative energy sources. Now, you know, this is a topic that I just mentioned. I, I'm very skittish in talking about it, but in this case, we're going to talk about it at the macro level. We're going to talk about it not as an oil drilling opportunity, but um, something that is uh, something that we need to know about because oil and alternative energy sources are a critical part of our, uh, our financial system. So it's information you're going to need to understand, again, the larger global financial picture. And we're going to have a great interview with an expert in this space when we come back. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector conservative investing with double-digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com, accesswealthaviation.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Alex Stevens. Uh, Alex is a manager of policy and communication for the Institute for Energy Research. He writes on the relationship between business and government in the energy industry, as well as the effects of regulation and subsidies on energy markets. Alex, welcome uh, to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, this is uh, obviously this stuff gets pretty complex. Um, and so I want to kind of talk a little, you know, go back to kind of where we are right now. There is this, you know, obviously in recent years, a real push towards green and alternative energies and all that kind of thing. But we still are largely an oil and gas, 
maybe not largely, but we are an oil and gas based global economy, right? Still. And I'm wondering why, uh, where we are in that balance and what you see is potentially, um, you know, some of the tipping points that might happen. Yeah. So, uh, just to give sort of the lay of the land globally, uh, we get the largest amount of our energy from, uh, oil, uh, followed by coal and the natural gas sort of in that order. And in terms of a percentage, about 80% of the world's energy consumption comes from those three resources. Uh, and here in the U.S., uh, it, we pretty closely mirror the, the global uh, percentage. It's about 79% here in the U.S. Uh, that comes from those three sources. Um, and then just to give you an idea of kind of how that number has changed over time, uh, if you go back to 1988, uh, the global market share of fossil fuels was about 88%. Uh, of total energy consumption. So it's come down a little bit, but, uh, you know, the reason I chose 1988 is really that's the year that climate change kind of entered the policy uh, discussions. So, you know, the point being that, you know, after decades of climate debate, policy debates, uh, treaties, subsidies, mandates, all sorts of things, you know, we still largely live in a world that's powered by fossil fuels. Well, and beyond that, I would, I, I wonder on that statistic you said going from, you know, uh, what was it, 88 to 80%, yeah. 80%, the absolute amount of energy uh, that it's coming from uh, from fossil fuels, et cetera, has probably gone up. Right, yeah. It's the, So the market has grown. So, um, yeah, obviously the we're consuming more fossil fuels, even though that percentage has come down. So um, I, guess, I guess one of the questions I have, if you know, multiple countries, including the U.S., claim they want to go to green what what's the issue why isn't uh, what's slowing the process down well it's a good question uh yeah so the the answer is probably twofold uh why we're not going uh into this like green revolution the first is that it's incredibly costly um despite everything that's been made about how much renewable energy has come down in uh in price in recent years uh the fact of the matter is you know wind and solar energy are still very costly. Um, and the reason for that is that when you take into account the costs the resources uh, impose on the entire electrical grid, the entire system, uh, because they're not dispatchable, uh, they end up actually increasing electricity prices. And that's because uh, you end up having to pay not just for the wind and solar resources, but then also the natural gas plants and nuclear plants that have to back them up when uh, when those resources aren't available. So when the sun isn't shining or uh, the wind isn't blowing, uh, you know, we, we demand electricity, you know, 24-7. So uh, you can't just have a system where uh, you only have those resources. So the, the, you end up paying for almost uh, double the uh, double the, the system. Well, let me ask you this. In terms of, um, I mean, just looking at this again on more of a, a global basis, how does uh, a policy, whatever policies we have right now in terms of, you know, green energy and that kind of thing, how does it differ from like a China, for example? Yeah, so I'm not an expert on Chinese energy policy, but, uh, you know, what I, what I can say is that there's similarities and there's some differences. So uh, in 2020, uh, China's President Xi Jinping said that his country would, uh, his their goal would be to, uh, for their carbon emissions to reach their highest point before 2030, and then uh, they'd reach carbon neutrality by 2060. 
Um, the country's new coal-fired generating capacity, however, represents about six times the amount of total coal-fired capacity added over the past five years of the rest of the world. So it's sort of like they're saying that they're going to set these goals, and uh, but what they're actually doing is adding a ton of coal-fired power plants. So I guess what I would say about China is that, like a lot of other countries, their government has set very lofty decarbonization goals pretty far out in the future, uh, but their actions seem to point in a different direction. Um, as you know, last year they added uh, it was over 100 gigawatts of coal-fired capacity. So how does China's green policy differ from the U.S.? I would say, you know, basically it appears that they are saying that they're going to do these things, but they're not actually stupid enough to pursue them. They're uh, still relying on fossil fuel energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I'm getting from you is essentially that, okay, yeah, this, the green stuff, it's uh, sounds good in theory, but right now, I mean, what drives ultimately all of this is what it costs. And if it was truly cheaper, we'd probably be going in that direction, but it's not. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, um, obviously, there's a lot of subsidies and mandates that sort of drive the renewable energy market. Um, there's no doubt that the costs of onshore wind and solar energy have come down a lot since uh, the investment tax credit for solar and the production tax credit for wind were put in place in 1992. But those tax credits have been extended 13 times since then, and they keep getting extended even though these industries claim that you know, they can be competitive without them. But whenever those uh, those tax credits come up for uh, review, you know, obviously those industries are kind of there behind the scenes saying, no, we need to keep these in place. So. Um, well, and it's tricky too, because, it, you know, you, it, it in reality, it, it doesn't necessarily seem to make a whole lot of sense economically right now. But then even today, or I don't know if it was today, but recently the EPA story just breaking about uh, combustion uh, engine em emissions. It sounds like basically the government's trying to end gas cars via regulation. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that sounds like it's relatively new news, and I'm sure you're all over it. Yeah, so I don't have the complete details of exactly what the EPA re released earlier this week. Uh, I know some of my colleagues here at IER have been working on it, and we have a few blog posts um, on it. So I, I would encourage your listeners to go to our website and check it out. Um, what I would say is that it's obvious that what the administration wants to do is encourage people to buy electric vehicles. And uh, the changes to the tailpipe emissions rule are just you know one small piece of what they're trying to do there. Um, I think when you look at sort of some of the surveys that have come out recently about how consumers feel about electric vehicles, uh, I'm hesitant to say that, you know, we're definitely moving in this really quick transition to electric vehicles. Uh, um, Gallup had a report that came out this week that shows that only 12% of Americans are seriously considering buying an electric vehicle. Um, on the other hand, 43% said they might consider buying one sometime in the future, but 41% unequivocally said they're not interested in electric vehicles. Um, so that's probably not great news to Ford, who recently lost you know, $3 billion in their EV uh, uh, sales this year. And 
you know, most of the reports that I've seen, it's still people citing the high costs for electric vehicles and then the problems with uh, the lack of charging infrastructure as being the, the main concerns there. And I think that sort of makes a lot of sense. I think the average cost of electric vehicle, uh, the upfront cost is like over sixty-five or $66,000 right now. Um, so I, I, I want to be clear, you know, I'm not against electric vehicles, you know, per se. Um, I just don't think the government should be handing out subsidies to, to people to, who want to buy them. The majority of electric vehicle owners are high earners. Um, in a lot of cases, it's their second or third car. Uh, so I'm opposed to the government handing out subsidies to people who are wealthy and for things that are basically kind of play toys for the rich. Um, but so if you, you want an electric vehicle, you're free to buy one, but I think the government's probably making a mistake here trying to encourage everyone into that market, um, uh, very quickly. So, yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a complicated thing. Um, I mean, I think also because, I mean, I, I'm certainly no expert on this, but when you've been talking about like a lot of these electrical vehicles, the, the amount of, the amount of fossil fuel energy that goes into producing them is significant. So it seems like, okay, well then what exactly are you subsidizing? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about electric vehicles, you know, how green they actually are, you have to take into account, you know, exactly what, uh, the grid that it's being charged off of, you know, what sort of resources are being used to power that grid. So if it's being powered by coal energy, not so green. Um, and you know, there, there's obviously some issues environmentally with the way, uh, with what's gets put into, uh, the batteries. Um, obviously it's a lot of lithium mining, a lot of this goes on in countries that don't have the greatest environmental records, especially China. Um, so I think people are becoming a little bit more skeptical of, well, really just how green actually are uh, these things like renewable energy and, and electric vehicles at the end of the day. Um, I, and I think that skepticism is warranted. I'm curious how some of the public oil companies um like Exxon, BP, uh, how are they responding to some of the pressures? Um, you know, obviously they've outperformed most asset classes over the last two years. Are you seeing anything, I think, it, towards pushing towards any sort of green initiatives on, on their end? Well, uh, so obviously some of the European companies have sort of adopted more of a green energy posture and thinking BP and Shell have moved more in that direction. Um, I think Exxon and Chevron and some of these companies haven't been quite as eager to do that. Um, you know, I, I think the energy companies are in a very tough position where they're responsible for producing energy for, for basically our entire economy. And they've sort of been put in this position where uh, I don't want to say everyone should be necessarily like grateful for that, but obviously there's this cultural movement that, you know, really is trying to demonize these companies in ways that doesn't completely appreciate exactly, you know, the extent to which, uh, you know, the products that they produce obviously greatly increase their standard of living, not just in terms of uh, energy and electricity and things, but obviously, you know, uh, all of our plastic products are petroleum based. 
Uh, natural gas is used as a feedstock to create fertilizer. So, you know, th- their products have an uh, impact on our food supply. Um, coal is used to create concrete. So, you know, r- really every part of our economy is touched by the products that these companies make and produce. So um, they're definitely in a tough position where they're being demonized, but really, you know, our high standards of living, uh, the products that they produce, uh, you know, we're re- are really responsible for how well, you know, human beings, especially in the United States live. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the irony of it all. Right. Is yeah. that, I mean, the oil and gas industry, as much as they're demonized now, I mean, we, we really owe, modern civilization to to that you wouldn't have had the industrial revolution you wouldn't have had any any number of things happening without this kind of energy driving the whole thing um in okay so you know we talk about like the u.s and china but there's the rest of the world too i mean and there's the rest of the world is there really i mean the middle east etc is there any push for them um to to go green or are they just like okay you guys do what you want to do we're going to, you know, we've got oil and gas here and we're doing just fine. Well, I think what you see with a lot of governments is they make these commitments that are very far off in the future. And uh, especially in democracies where, you know, people aren't in power for, you know, very necessarily for very long, they're able to commit to things that are far off in the future. And then, uh, you know, they won't be around necessarily when the bill comes due. So um, it's been pretty common for governments sort of all over the world to, sort of make vague commitments towards, uh, towards, you know, going green and committing to renewable energy and electric vehicles and these things. But to the extent they're actually willing to do that, um, it's kind of up in the air. I think if you look at Europe right now, they're very far along actually in the process. They, they've made these commitments and then actually have pursued them. And you're seeing right now with the energy crisis in Europe, which there's sort of a narrative out there that, this whole thing has been caused by the war in Ukraine. That's obviously exacerbated the pro- the energy problems in Europe, but those problems were starting well before the war happened. And uh, the energy crisis is due to the policy decisions that have been made there. Um, most notably, they've retired a lot of coal and nuclear generation in, um, in, in Germany, especially, but a lot of countries have been retiring their sort of baseload energy plants and replacing it with renewable energy sources. And it's uh, for the reasons that I sort of explained earlier, um, that's playing a big role in the huge, basically cost of living crisis that you're seeing in Europe right now. I'm curious what you think drives uh, government policymakers towards renewables, specifically as opposed to, you know, a broader perspective like oil, wind, nuclear, as you mentioned. I mean, what, why, why just renewables? Why is there a focus on that? Well, I think if you look at the actual like energy policy space, there are subsidies for, for um, really just about every source. So everything gets subsidized and everything gets regulated. So uh, it all really doesn't kind of make sense. But um, there's no doubt that the renewable energy sources receive the lion's share of uh of subsidies and mandates and things here in the U.S. Um, why they specifically choose renewable energy, I don't know. It's been sort of a common theme for people to sort of, uh, I guess, fantasize about a transition away from fossil fuels for a very long time. And uh, 
I have a, I have a book on my desk right now that's, uh, um, that was published in the 1970s that was trying to project the future of energy and everything. And even back then, you know, they were saying, well, it's obvious that solar energy, these renewable sources are the future, and it's only a matter of time to make this happen. So um, why they're specifically fixated on those sources, <laughs> I, I honestly couldn't tell you, but uh, um, it's, it's definitely interesting and sort of at odds at, uh, for what is in the best interests of, of people and people's standard of living. There's been, um, you mentioned specifically about nuclear, about, you know, Germany closing plants and, and all that. Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a renewed interest though, right. In, in nuclear across board. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know, I mean, this is, it's probably, I mean, as, as scary as nuclear is to, I think a lot of people, um, it's probably the most, cleanest and most efficient way of getting energy. So what kind of movement are we seeing on that? So there's definitely been a shift in policy circles um, towards a new emphasis on nuclear energy. There are problems with nuclear though. They have very high upfront costs. So nuclear is very expensive. The degree to which that is that regulation is responsible for that is probably playing a bit. It's probably playing a big role there. So, you know, nuclear is a great technology. It doesn't produce carbon, very minimal environmental impacts and things. But um, there's sort of this problem where technologies that are born in sort of government captivity, like nuclear was um, through the, uh, obviously, sort of the atomic bomb program and stuff. When technologies are sort of born under control of government, it's very difficult for people in those industries and obviously the policymakers that sort of surround it to take a step back and say, you know, the government really needs to take a step back and kind of take a hands-off role with this technology. So, you know, I'm certainly in favor of uh, basically decriminalizing nuclear and trying to move barriers to nuclear out of the way. I am a little pessimistic though, because I think there's sort of a culture within that industry that, has sort of always been comfortable being a part of government, you know, playing along with the the agencies that regulate them. So it's going to be very difficult for nuclear energy advocates to, to sort of decouple that that relationship. Um, but you know, I would support support efforts to do that, and um, there uh, is certainly a movement amongst. Uh, policymakers to try to make that happen. One of the things I think is a challenge, even in the U.S., I mean, regardless of where you are on this, uh, whether you're really one of pushing for green or you're not, is that, you know, from administration to administration, they're going to have very different policies on this. So the Biden administration might have a you know, strong push towards uh, re- renewables and green energy. And then the next thing you know, you have a Republican administration that comes in who really has no interest in this. And so it, it makes it very uh, I think it makes it uh, very challenging when there's not a uh, consensus uh, amongst politicians and amongst even people in the country about which way, which way to move. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think in general with energy policy discussions, I think there's a cultural problem where everyone is looking towards Washington DC for uh, you know, how are we going to drive innovation? How are we going to, you know, change these in- industries and things? I think that's really unhealthy because I, I don't think politicians and policymakers 
necessarily have the best incentives to be able to identify, you know, what the future of technology is going to be. And um, they definitely don't have the knowledge and incentives to sort of guide that technology along. That's what the private sector is so good at doing. So, you know, I personally would really like to see a shift away from uh, energy policy discussions being about, well, what type of energy are we going to support? You know, who are we going to subsidize? Who are we going to regulate? And a shift back to a culture of sort of free enterprise that says, no, we're going to eliminate barriers to enter energy markets. We're going to let everyone compete and we're going to see what customers and consumers prefer whether it be in terms of where they get their energy from or what type of vehicles they want to buy. Um, and I think that the business community really needs to play a role in making that shift from not looking towards Washington to tell them what sort of products to make, but to re uh, rediscover, I guess, sort of the, the uh, culture of free enterprise that, uh, has made America great and uh, has really driven innovation and the sort of things that we're looking for, um, for the future of energy. What is the, in your opinion, I mean, you're kind of, you're obviously knee deep in this stuff every day. What do you think is going to happen over the next decade? Do you think there, I mean, I'm not asking you to look at a crystal ball, but I mean, obviously you've got some data, you see trends. Do you see much changing over the next decade? Yeah. So, if you try to project forward a little bit, if you look at the EIA's energy outlook for this year for uh, 2023, you know, they project that in 2025, oil, uh, natural gas, and coal are still going to make up the majority of U.S. energy consumption uh, to, uh, in 2050. 2050. Um, 2050. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and, and they expect that number to be around like 65%. So coming down... Their projections have historically been pretty good. Sometimes they make mistakes. Um, so despite what people are saying, you know, this overnight energy transformation, even the government agencies are saying, you know, this isn't going to happen overnight. In 2050, 65% of our energy consumption is still going to come from oil, coal, and natural gas. So, you know, what's going to happen um, in the next maybe 10 years? You know, I, I think people are... One, waking up to the fact that, you know, government isn't very good at driving innovation, that we're spending tons of money subsidizing huge companies that, quite frankly, don't deserve to be subsidized in the name of trying to drive innovation, trying to drive change and progress in the energy sector. And I think people are going to become a little bit disillusioned, a little bit burnt out with the idea of, government playing the lead role in all this. And, and hopefully people sort of wake up to that and, and say, no, we need to get back to a world where companies are focused on providing things for the, the consumer and what consumers want. And in a competitive marketplace, that sort of driving the innovation um, rather than looking to Washington DC to do it. Good stuff, Alex. Very interesting. Um, where can we learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, so you can find my work and my colleagues' work at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Uh, we're a free market think tank based in Washington, D.C. here. Um, we have a blog where we publish uh, one or two articles every single day, usually just daily news stories about energy. 
Uh, we have a, a newsletter called In the Pipeline, which is sort of an uh, energy news roundup. Um, and then we have a couple of podcasts as well. I host a podcast called Plugged In, uh, where I talk to politicians, policymakers, journalists, uh, people from the industry. Um, and you can find all of that work at Institute for Energy Research.org. Fantastic. Thanks, Alex, for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Hope you enjoyed it. And going back to uh, initial discussion of what we were talking about uh, with regard to Investor Club, I want to also point out, if you, uh, first of all, if you're not in our Investor Club and you are an accredited investor, which means you um, make uh, $200,000 per year or more, $300,000 per year filing jointly with a reasonable expectation of, of continuing to do so in the future, or you have uh, net worth of a million dollars or more outside your personal uh, residence, then you are an accredited investor and you could join Investor Club at wealthformula.com. There's going to be additional, uh, the additional part of that is not part of that, but as a separate thing, if you're interested uh, in getting onboarded by the broker dealer uh, that uh, we've been discussing, um, that we're working with, definitely reach out to Dana or me. Dana at wealthformula.com or, you know, Buck at wealthformula.com. We'll get you onboarded. Lots of great potential opportunities coming down the pipeline here. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.